Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and host of this podcast. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast, as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. My guest this week is Ethan Mason, and anyone who listened to the last episode will know that Ethan is a role player to be. As a result, there will be no Inside the Roleplay Studio, and instead we'll take a trip down memory lane, while at the same time experiencing role-playing anew through the eyes of my guest. How's it going, Ethan? Uh, very good, Daniel. How about you? I'm doing just fine after spending quite a bit of time trying to get us all set up here. You may be, <laughs> you may be interested to uh, to know here that um, all my interviews prior to this have been over the telephone, and this is the first time I've actually had somebody sitting down with me, and yet here I am on Skype sitting in the same house recording this. So, so that uh, gives you some idea. It's not... Uh, Recording a podcast is not all uh, beer and skittles. It's a, it's a pretty tricky business sometimes. Anyway, so generally speaking on the show, I do a bit called uh, Inside the Role Player Studio. And Inside the Role Player Studio is a, a series of standard questions that I ask all people that have role-played before. But as all those questions pertain to people with role-playing experience, I guess those are all going to be of no use at all. So instead, I've got a different series of questions, and uh, we'll get to know a little bit about Ethan, and then maybe from there... It'll give us some perspective on on his uh, response for the second part of this. So I, my first question for you today, Ethan, is what had you heard about role-playing before um, we talked, uh, at least in terms of like pen and paper role-playing rather than like MMOs or uh, even something like, say, you know, Skyrim or, or Baldur's Gate or something like that? Oh, uh, well... When I was uh, younger, my cousin John used to play role-playing games. So the, the, the perspective I got from it is that it's you'd have little characters set up and you'd have your sheet and then someone would tell you the story of how it goes and you'd roll the dice to see what the outcome would be. So I always kind of looked at it as a kind of game for people that were smarter, like that actually could comprehend that kind of stuff and put it together and follow a story like that. So what did, did you actually uh, watch them play? or uh, I would glance over out it didn't really pique my interest all that much just watching them throw dies and move characters around on a board so what about uh, anybody at school you're uh just relatively recently out of high school a couple of three years now but at high school did people ever were there any people that were role playing at school or did people have an impression of role players at school the reason i bring it up is i discussed with a number of people on previous episode what the current uh, feeling is about role playing in general. Uh, Keely mentioned that there was some sort of like geek chic. There is now people that are into what, on the surface at least, seem to be you know nerdy type pursuits are actually kind of cool now. Whereas when I was at school, you know, being into role playing and computers and that sort of thing was definitely uncool. Uh, do people know, or that is, do high school kids or relatively young adults uh, have much contact with with role playing, or is it? Uh, is it really something that mostly is moving with people of my age? Well, uh, I've never known anybody when I was in high school that ever really did role play. It was mostly like the older guys around my age now that played it, like people who were in their mid twenties or early twenties playing it. And so you never really heard much of it at school or anything like that. And so, were you aware of it from the media at all, or had the only contact you had with it is that that one somebody who was in your family who was playing it? Oh, no, I've seen a lot of movies that are based on role-playing games. Like, if you've ever heard of the movie um, Taji, it's about it's, it's a movie based on the idea that they're playing a role-playing game, but they acted it out in person. Like, 
instead of playing on an actual board game, they actually played it out as like themselves playing in a an actual building. Okay. So that was another way of seeing role playing that I saw, and I've seen lots of movies where they've had it as in like like story based around it and stuff like that. Okay, and would you say that uh, you are interested in um, traditional uh, fantasy types, things like Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and that sort of thing, and that's why role playing appeals, or are you coming? Is it more appealing to you because of your background with MMOs and uh, Baldur's Gate type games, computer games, that sort of thing? Well, it's a little bit of both. Like, I, I like the the kind of, like, fantasy stuff like that. And I do like the games that, like, on consoles, like Skyrim, like, role-playing games like that. So they kind of both hand-in-hand hand go together for me. Like, I kind of like them both. Okay. And, and what particular things about role-playing pencil and paper appeal to you? Well, just like how you were telling me that you can you can do anything. Like, if... if you just, like, say you run into a stranger and you want to fight them or befriend them, do what you want. You, like, in Skyrim, you can't really do that, those kind of games. You can't. you got to kind of really follow a slight guideline of how you talk to them and all that. But with, with uh, like, the role-playing game pen, pen, paper and and pen, you know, you could decide what you want to say to them and, and whatnot. So I've played a couple of MMOs and also a couple of uh, those predetermined, like, Skyrim-type stories. And... There are only ever four or five sort of responses that you can give, and that leads you. I mean, it, you can't see it, but my feeling is always that they've got a sort of flow chart in the background. If they say this, then this. If they say that, then that. And you're moving sort of through a maze of responses, and there's never ever the exact response that uh, that you want to give. And I always, coming from a role playing background, I always found that kind of restricted. I, f- I felt myself wanting to change the story that I had in front of me, and I, I found that frustrating in some respects being a role player and then coming to those sort of games because when I was growing up there was never any of that type of detail available I was only of games I had contact with were things like Crystal Cave which were text type adventures but then when like I say I keep going back to Baldur's Gate because it's one I'm particularly familiar with but you know Skyrim or um, or any of those type of games um, I felt restricted do you, do you feel restricted when you play them like you want to give option six which is not available to you yes like well when i'm playing skyrim for example like i'll run into somebody in the game that you you, just, you want to ask them certain things like one of them will come up and say oh i was attacked da, 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 and you, you're trying to get like a, a decent response out of them or you want to ask them something than what the game actually lets you ask them so that kind of kind of a letdown when you can't ask them what you want to ask and get the response you want like you said you're like going around in a maze trying to find more of a direct response to the question you gave with the initial uh, conversation that we that we had, I described you know like you have all the various options and it's resolved uh, using using dice. Did that help you to make more sense of what you had um, seen with your with your uncle playing, or is it still a little bit weird trying to get your head around exactly how that's going to be without actually seeing it in action? That's still a little bit fuzzy to me. Like I, I've never like seen it in action will make it more clear for me, but I have a better understanding from from what I did when I was a kid. For understand sure. how the dice work and how it determines your outcome. Like certain numbers give you certain, give you the upper hand, or you know you lose. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I, th- I think that, um, that some, there are different sorts of, of games, and depending on the type of game you've got, you can get. Uh, it was one of my previous guests was a chap by the name of Sean Nittner, and, and one of the things that we were discussing was that uh, when you roll dice, uh, some games will support the idea that no matter what the outcome is. Uh, there'll be an interesting 
outcome in the game. So the dice will be like if you try to say, for example, pick a lock and you roll, you're either going to be successful or you're not going to be successful. And that not going to be successful in terms of telling a, a story is not interesting. So, for example, in the movies, when people try to pick a lock, they never build the scene up to picking a lock and then go to pick the lock and it doesn't work. And then that's the end of the scene because there's no kind of payoff for that scene. And we were talking about how for the type of role-playing games, at least, that we appreciate, whenever somebody goes to do something, there should be either something good that happens or something bad that happens. But not not all role-playing games support that idea. Now, you've read a little bit of Victoria, which is uh, the game that I wrote. Um, And one of the things that I did when I was writing the game is that I wanted to try to encourage everything that happened in it to be somewhat cinematic. When it comes to role-playing, there are... Uh, there's sort of a spectrum from everything is resolved uh, using dice and it's very hard and fast, like say for example Rollmaster, to systems like Theatrics, which is a system where there's there's no dice to uh, work things out. And Victoria is at one end of the scale where the emphasis is really placed on the story. Just from your own experience with MMOs, because one of the ideas that I had, and this may not necessarily be accurate, um, when it comes to MMOs, when you kill people, you get treasure and you get gears, and that's a way kind of, of keeping score, and the characters develop level upon level upon level upon level. When you're playing games like, say, for example, um, like I know you've not played World of Warcraft, when you're playing those types of games, do you find that you're that you focus really on the equipment that they have and the things that they have and the level that they're at, or are you more interested in the story that's going on in the background? Uh, for me, it's a little bit of both. Like I'll play the story, but I do also like to you know like collect loot and look at the gear perspective and find all the cool weapons and stuff. But at the same time, I like to focus on the story a little bit too. Okay, so going in um, without actually having played. Do you have a feeling for whether you might prefer a game where, you know, you've got a character and they're going up levels and they're getting gear and they're getting um, loot and they're getting stuff like that and they're, like, there's a little, it's almost a score element to it and you see your character progressing in that way or do you think that uh, you might prefer games where it's more sort of about the story and about the character development in intangible ways, as I say, there's no actual numbers associated with the way that your character is developing? Well, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to listen to the story, but I like also like to see my character build himself up from nothing to actual something, like improving himself, and but still at the same time have a story, though. Right. I think that there is a happy medium to be had from, from all games, and I don't think necessarily that the system is going to restrict that, but certainly some systems will develop characters in intangible ways rather than in more, like, I've got more hit points, I've got a better chance to hit and kill somebody, I've got more gold, I've got a cool gear, you know, that that sort of thing. So um, do you think that you would be dissatisfied with an experience that didn't have uh, emphasis on getting gear and money? Would that be something that would help you to make the transition from a computer-based game with a score uh, to a role-playing game? Uh, Not so much, but, like, it depends on how I'm feeling, but when I'm playing the game, like, I mean, it's not usually all about gear, but sometimes I like to have a little bit of a challenge, like, where you got to work out a strategy to do something, too, like, so it's not really all about the gear, like, a game where, like, like you have, like, where you got to think about situations and to, to get past things, I kind of like that, too. Okay, so you like the puzzle-solving yeah. uh, element of it as well. Okay, and... 
with that in mind to making the transition, um, have you played uh, role-playing, or like computer-based role-playing games set in all different, uh, uh, with all different settings like um, Bioshock as well as things like Skyrim, like fantasy as opposed to apocalyptic future and, and that sort of thing? Have you played all of them? And if so, do you have a preference for genre? I've played Bioshock, I've played The Fallout, I've played Oblivion, Skyrim, and I find they're all good. Like, they've all got the same, like, they got good stories, they got good progression for the character, like, you can, lots of puzzles to figure out, it's just, I, I like them all. So you don't think that, uh, in general, people would appreciate going from a, uh, towards a sword and sorcery type thing first? Like, I know you haven't, as I say, you haven't played World of Warcraft, but you probably know some people that do play it, and do you think a certain type of role-playing game, pen and paper, would appeal to World of Warcraft-type people, or do you think that they're also likely to enjoy all different types of role-playing games regardless? I think they'd be more, like, more apt to go for a game that's more like World of Warcraft, like the sword magic perspective. Like, I have a cousin who plays World of Warcraft a lot. He he won't play, like, he's played skyrim and all that he prefers that way over like any of the other rpg games just because it's got magic swords just like he related to uh world of warcraft a lot so i think there would be a specific pen and paper game that they would go for like weapons like magic and swords versus like modern times or stuff like victoria Right. Uh, that was another thing that uh, came up, and I don't think it's restricted to computer gamers at all, because I know that there are a lot of people that picked up first edition Dungeons & Dragons and are still playing it now 30 years later, and they're reluctant to change. So I don't know if it necessarily comes from a perspective of, of how you played your role-playing games when you develop a, a, um, a particular genre that you like to play and don't like to go outside that. But um, now that you've mentioned uh, Victoria, and so have I a couple of times, um, uh, you had the book um, for a week or so now, and I was wondering if from the your initial contact with it, uh, what impressions you had of role playing if it changed the way that you changed the way that you thought about it oh oh yeah, definitely like uh, reading that little little example you had about the people waking up in the warehouse and like just the details of describing it like like how the game master would describe the smells in the air and the wetness they were feeling and all the details. It just, it really paints a picture for it. So, like, it, it's definitely opened my eyes a little bit more than what I thought it was like, for sure. Okay, so like, what did you initially think that it was like? I just kind of thought it would be like uh, having little characters on a board and then you'd be asked questions and you'd have to roll a dice to see what you're going to do and just not really interesting in a way. Like, no real, like, real good story to it. I thought it would just be like... From what I've seen and seen on movies and seen people play, it just looks like you, you're given a choice, you decide, you roll a dice, and you move on to the ultimate goal and try to win. Does it bother you uh, at all, or does it, does it make it easier or harder to get behind a game where there is actually no winning condition? Like you're, There may be a mission that the people need to complete, but does it bother you that there is no overall end to it? Not really, no. So the open-ended nature of it doesn't uh, is not intimidating, or it doesn't feel like you know what's the point. No, it kind of feels like it leaves room for like something else to happen, like a, another part to the game. Maybe like it continues on with the same people, or something else will ha- could happen. Like an open-ended is open-ended game's not bad. Like like Skyrim, for example. Like when you beat the main story, it's still open-ended. Like there's thousands of possibilities that could happen. Like you can continue on. Like with DLC and stuff, like, they'll add on stuff for the end of the store to keep it going. Like, 
So I'm not really bothered by an open-ending game. Okay. Now, one of the other things that we discussed about uh, role-playing um, last time we spoke was the idea of uh, being a game master. And some people go through their whole role-playing career never actually being the game master or dungeon master or storyteller or whatever it might be that you want to call it. Um, but you, right off the bat, seemed pretty interested in being a game master. What about being a game master appealed to you? Just creating a story that people enjoy and, you know, like kind of giving them that, giving them a, pi- a picture to paint in their head with, like, how you're telling the story. And- so would that, being a game master, is that the sort of thing that would encourage you to do more reading? Or when you're going into it, are you thinking more along the lines of a story that's already formed, like, for example, taking a legend and adapting it? Uh, well, it's kind of like how we discussed, like, about how I wanted to make kind of a story about Greek mythology. Like, I would use facts from where like everything i've learned from like i've played a lot of greek mythology games i've done a lot of research on i would take bits and pieces from all the different stories and kind of throw it all into one so that's not all just facts but there's still a lot of interesting story to it right something that you can't figure out well i know how this goes because i've i've heard of this story before my i don't know class before in history class just like some new story based somewhat on facts but you know it's like it's believable like good story to follow yeah, that's a, a good, I think, a good attitude to uh, take into it. I, in my book, in the Game Master section, I advocate taking a story that's already happened and then adapting it to a different setting, which will make it feel uh, familiar. But anybody, uh, unfamiliar, sorry, but anybody who has read the James Bond role-playing game, I played the James Bond game once, and I forget exactly the name of the film that the role-playing game was based on, but whoever it was that wrote the module cut the whole thing from from the movie, so right through to the point where you have to run on the alligator's nose to get across a uh, to get across a, a pond of some kind. I forget exactly how it went in the movie. But right down to that point it was that was how they had it represented in the in the game. So there was really nothing new available to the players playing through the game. There like you say, Ethan, the, the story was already formed and you just sort of like went through the motions. And to a degree, um, although I enjoyed playing that game, it felt a little bit like I don't want to say a railroad, but you felt like you were moving down down a tunnel with no no opportunity for diverging. Um, so going back to what you were saying about uh, writing your story and then having read that introductory piece in Victoria outlining an example of play, how do you think you would uh, view creating a story? Uh, um I really don't know. (laughs) The reason I'm asking these tricky questions is so that later on when we come to part two of the uh, podcast, you can say, well, you know, this didn't happen the way I thought it did, and that did happen the way I thought it would. So going back to the book, you've read the first few chapters and got as far as character creation. Now, you were mentioning that you didn't have a lot of trouble understanding most of the parts of that, but uh, when it came to the character creation part, you said that you had some questions. Yeah, like... um when you're creating all your strengths and your weaknesses, it'll tell you to put so many in your in your like strength, like intelligence, and you get all these different sets that you can put them in. Like you have your your main your main skills and your um, secondary skills, and you got the what was that other one called? The the lower one that's not really used much. Um, like like for example, in your book, you can choose like middle class, upper class, and working class. Right. So if you're an upper class, there you could put like you don't communicate well with the working class. You can't get information good from them, but you have that that third um, 
character creation bar where you could put a couple skill points into it to help with that. Right, sure. Yeah, the, the way that I set it out was, and all role-playing games have something like this, because your character is an avatar of sorts, when it comes to talking about your character, there are ways you can quantify their skills. Uh, there is upper class, middle class, and working class, but I'm actually going to start with the bottom one, which is personal skills. Now, personal skills are athletics, machines, people, and wits. Now, these are really the gifts of your DNA. It is possible for you to improve them, but it's much more difficult than the skills above the middle class, upper class, working class. So athletics means how athletic you are. So if ever you're doing anything that really relies on your body to achieve it rather than your mind, it's going to go to athletics. Like, say, for example, climbing a wall, running, a running across a log, um, carrying something that's heavy, that sort of thing. So the more spots you've got in your main, which is the numbers that relate to your skill, um, the better you are at it. So, for example, in Victoria, it's based upon 2d6. So what that means is two six-sided dice. And when you roll them, the numbers that, that come up need to correspond with the dots that you filled in. So, for example, if you have an athletic skill, which is 6, 7, and 8, say, for example, if you roll a 6, a 7, or an 8 on two six-sided dice, then you'll be successful. So let's just say you were trying to climb up that wall, and I said to you, okay, you're, the wall has uh, got lots of cracks and stuff in it, so it's not overly difficult. So just roll your athletics, and if you're successful, then uh, we'll say that you've climbed the wall. So if your athletics skill was, say, for example, 6, 7, and 8, then you roll the two six-sided dice. If a 6, a 7, or an 8 comes up, then, then you're successful. Okay, the next one that there is in there is machines. Now... The Industrial Revolution was in full swing in the Victorian era, and machines really relates to people's ability to understand what's going on. And that extends also, if you're playing a game that's, say, for example, set at the end of the Victorian era when there began to be things like uh, electronics in very rudimentary form, then it's also going to apply to that. So just like in, in our lives today, there are people that have an affinity for machines, and there are people for which there are a complete mystery and an everlasting one of that. And then there's people skills, so that means how well you relate to other people. Um, but it also covers things like your ability to intimidate them and, and things like that. And then you've got wits, and your wits is really your mental faculties. So, like, are you smart? Are you, without wanting to use the wording, quick-witted or, you know, wise? Basically... Your mental capacity. Somebody with a high wits would be intelligent and wise and all that sort of thing. Okay, now going to the uh, skills, your upper class, middle class, and working class type skills, those are things which are as a result of your education or your experience at least. So, for example, if you're an upper class individual, then you've got high society, linguistics, medicinal, and research. Now, in Victoria, there are only 16 skills uh, which you can choose from, but Depending on the type of game you've got and sort of detail that you want to have, um, there are more or there are fewer skills available. So Victoria probably falls somewhere in the middle. But by using these different skills, it helps to resolve things. So the example that you gave was using your high society skills. So, for example, high society is a skill that you would use to try to um, get along in high society. So, for example, if you needed an invite to a... To, the, to a ball or something like that, then your high society skills would help you do that. The difference is that um, going now down to your personal skills, if you're 
talking about people skills, how those two things go together. Well, the difference between the two of them is that people skills relates to how personable you are regardless. So there are people who are charming, and there are people that are, for whatever reason, not as charming. So if you had a really high people skill, like, for example, your main was, say, 4 to 10, then what that would mean is that you were a very personal and charismatic person. So if you were in a conversation or you found yourself dealing with high society people, you would suffer a penalty for not being the same class if you were, say, for example, working class, but your overall charmingness would be enough to overcome most of that penalty. But if you had very low people skills and you were trying to deal with somebody in high society, then they may be extremely reluctant to uh, to speak with you. So to a degree, there is some overlap, but the classes that you have really are, they define to a greater extent than they do today the place where you fit in in society. And there's a much more of a stratification of society in the Victorian era than there is today. So if you were middle class, like you'd be somebody who would be in a job, like say for example a teacher or or something like that, perhaps in the military and then working class you'd be any number of the, the manual labour type jobs. Now going specifically to character creation, when it comes to upper class skills, if you decide your character is going to be upper class and you get to put more spots into your upper class, so for example you get to put three spots into all of them and then you can add an additional six spots onto that. So, for example, if you wanted to be particularly good at the medicinal skill, which covers all things to do with medicine, but also biology, chemistry, that sort of thing, then you would put an extra couple of spots in there and your main would grow from, say, being six to eight, which it is at base, to five to nine. Does that help to dis- to uh, explain that a little bit? Oh, yeah, it does. Um, going back to penalties, I remember reading somewhere uh, penalties. Is that when the game master takes a number from like from when you roll? He takes that, a certain number out so that if you roll, it does not help towards achieving your goal. Or yep, absolutely. I think it, and a good example of that is that, for example, let's say that your main for athletics was say five to nine. Yeah. Um, and let's say you're going back to climbing that wall, but let's just say it was a south-facing wall and it was mossy and slippery then the game master might say, okay, if it was a nice dry wall, then you'd be able to scamper up it without too much trouble. But because it's a slippery wall, then I'm going to apply a penalty of seven. So instead of your main being five, six, seven, eight, nine, your main would now be five, six, eight, nine. And if you were to roll a seven, whereas previously when the wall was nice and dry, it would be successful and you'd scamper up the wall, if you now roll a 7, then it means that you're going to fail rolling the wall and you'll tumble down the wall. There'll be some other consequence. Now, there's a way to... Now, when you were reading through the book, did you encounter the piece about plot points? Yes, uh, I did. Okay, so plot points are um, are a way for the player to affect the story. So let's just say, for example, it's really, really important for you to be able to climb up that mossy wall. And so because the mossy wall made it more difficult for you to climb, um, you would lose a seven. So if you really wanted to get up, you'd use a plot point to buy back that seven. So now, because you spend that plot point, you can, you'll be successful if you rolled the seven. 
Alright. Okay, so but you don't have to spend that plot point. See some people might like to try to uh, might like to try to gamble. So for example, if you want to climb that that wall that was mossy, you lost your seven, you can choose not to spend the plot point ahead of time and hope not to roll a seven. If you do so, then if you roll a seven, you're gonna fail, but you can choose to spend a plot point afterwards to buy that back. So, it'll count. So, so it will count, but if you spend the plot point after you've rolled and failed, then it means an additional complication occurs. So let's just say you were trying to climb that, that uh, mossy wall for the purposes of um, climbing into the window of a house. Then what would happen is you would be successful, you wouldn't fall off the wall, but in the process of trying to climb in the window, maybe you dislodged a brick and it alerted a gardener or a greenkeeper or something like that, um, and they came over. So it meant you had to try and hide so that they wouldn't see you, but then they may see the blocks that had fallen on the ground. Now, if you decided not to, spend the po- not to spend the plot point at all, then you'd tumble down off the wall and you may sustain some kind of an injury. So that would be why you, why you might want to spend it ahead of time or why you might want to spend it afterward. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay, so that's... And that's part of the system that I put together because, like we were talking about before, this null result. Um, the null result doesn't really help to forward the story. Like, say, for example, you know, you fall off the wall or, you know, you don't go up as fast or, or something like that. It's not really interesting. But by having the person fail, then the green the, 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 the gamekeeper or the greenkeeper or the, the gardener becomes involved in the story and it makes things slightly more difficult and I think that that makes the story slightly more interesting so specialties how do they work how do you acquire them and what real purpose do they have for your character okay well specialties are a way to demonstrate additional knowledge of a of a character so for example um, all extra spots that you get mean they've got extra skill but specialties are some particular aspect of that skill that you have. Most of the skills in this are very, very broad. So, for example, if you have um, trade and source as your skill, and you then get a seventh spot, not including the seventh, uh, not including the twelfth, in the twelfth, sorry, in that skill, then it means that not only is your main increased by one, but in addition you'll get to choose a specialty. So, for example. You choose carpentry okay. as, your, as your specialty for trade and source. So that means that your main is a certain size, but if you're doing something to do with carpentry, it means that you get one additional spot in that skill. So if your skill is 4 to 10, say, for example, and then that particular character finds himself in a situation where a they're in a mine shaft and uh, somebody's drop some sort of explosive and the mine shaft is collapsing, then you take then they somebody with a carpentry skill might want to try and shore up the mine shaft and you know, like in a really, really short period of time they'll grab up a whole bunch of, of wood and using the carpentry skills they'll go ahead and, and brace it so they don't get squashed. Now ordinarily in somebody with trade and sources their specialty was plumbing, say for example, okay. their, their main wouldn't change. But if your specialty was carpentry, then you get one additional, your your skill is deemed to be one additional spot wider. So from being 4 to 11, it would then become 
uh, sorry, 4 to 10, it would become 3 to 10. So you could roll a 3 through 10 to be successful. So a specialty really means that your skill, uh, your main in any particular skill is stretched by one spot when that particular attribute is being used. So for exa another example would be if you had athletics and you chose, you achieved your 7th spot excluding the 12th in athletics, then it would mean that you chose, let's say you chose distance running. Now, if you were doing some sort of um, task that required distance running, it would mean that your main would be stretched one additional spot. But if, you, for example, you were climbing walls or you were, you know, you were playing some type of ball game or, or, or something like that, then your main wouldn't be affected. But if it was something that required long distance running, then your skill main would be increased by one. Not, probably not very interesting to do long distance running, but that's an example. So how do you, how do you acquire like a specialty and a skill? Do you have to do something specific, or does it does it opportunity arise that you can acquire it? Or? Well, one of the things about most role playing games is that you have something called experience points. Now, in um, I'm not sure if Skyrim has it, but I know that World of Warcraft has it. And I don't know if Oblivion does. I, yeah, they, they both have like a skill-based XP leveling up system. Right, and that's basically what happens in um, the ga in most role-playing games is that by doing various things you can gain experience points. Now, Dungeons & Dragons, the only way you could really gain experience points was defeating creatures and getting gold. Um, and that's carried through to a number of MMOs, but um, in games like Victoria and the White Wolf-type games and games where there are more more emphasis is placed on story. You can get experience points for you know, good role-playing um, and for achieving goals and things like that, things that are a little bit less quantifiable. You accumulate those experience points as time goes by, and there are a couple of different schools of thought when it comes to spending experience points. Uh, some people feel that gaining experience points can only be used in skills that relate exactly to what it is that they've done. Okay. Whereas other people are of the opinion that when you get experience points, you shouldn't really try to control what the players want to do with it. So if you want to get really good at using swords and you haven't actually picked up a sword in-game, then you know for some people it's, they say, well, no, I'm afraid you can't do that um, because you didn't do any sword-type stuff. Whereas somebody else, another different type of GM might say, okay, well, it's just to say that in the downtime between going on this particular adventure and that particular adventure, let's say you practice a lot with a sword or something like that. And that's a tough one because even though the GM tries to um, create a good game environment where people will experience the things that theoretically their characters are interested in, um, sometimes it can happen that a player really wants to take their character in a direction which is not really supported by the things that they've done during the game. And as a GM, at least for me, I... I don't say, well, I'm sorry, you can't do that, because so there's a contract, an unwritten contract between the players and the GM, and the players say, okay, GM, you've got control of absolutely everything in the game except my character, and the GM has to then respect that they're going to be allowed to tell their particular story as it unfolds with the characters interacting with it, but anything that relates to the character they can't control. And one of those things is how they spend their experience points. So a way to get a specialty is to you know, spend your experience points to increase your skill 
that is to stretch your main to the point where you achieve that seventh spot, at which point you can select a penalty. Uh, sorry, select a select a specialty such as long distance running or picking locks. Maybe you know that's the sort of thing that you could select as a specialty. Okay. Um, so I hear a lot about GM. So how how would a, how do you roll like how do you act out as a GM? Like what does it take to be a GM? Um, well, I think that I mean we talked. I talked a lot about this in episode five with uh, with Chris, and one of the things that you probably will have noticed if you know if you've listened to all the podcasts is everybody's got a slightly different way of doing it. And ultimately, um, the most important thing about a GM is you've got to believe in your story. So it doesn't really matter how you go about preparing for your story or about how you know what you write down or anything like that. But before you go into a game, you should have an idea of the sort of things that could happen. Now, some people like to just fly by the seat of their pants, and that's that's fine, but I would bet that even those people spend some time thinking about the games and the possible areas that, that they can go in. In general, I would say start with a solid story that you're familiar with, like, say, for example, Rapunzel, or, you know, Hansel and Gretel, or, you know, like, Lethal Weapon, or whatever it might happen to be that you can hang your ideas on. Now, if I wanted to take, say, for example, The Three Little Pigs as a you know, as a, a template for running a game in, say, you know, a, a quasi-medieval times, Dungeons & Dragons type thing, then I would set out with my main bad, with my main character, which would be the big bad wolf, and you could decide what form that would take, and then... Obviously, your main character decided they weren't going to be a big bad wolf, but they're going to be an evil lord, say, for example. And the yeah. evil lord was, for whatever reason, his his authority was being contested, let's say, by three different villages. The big bad wolf would then, or in this particular case, the evil lord would then spend his time going around like sacking these villages or what, whatever it might happen to be. Now, that's, not a, that's an imperfect example, but by taking a general idea and then morphing it to your particular area of interest that's going to create the story that you can believe in the best if you understand the story like the theme of the story or even if you just understand the plot of the story by understanding what's happened before you can anticipate what the players are going to do so um so yeah so first is start with a story you're familiar with okay and then add to that story that you're familiar with because uh, as i mentioned last week there are really only six different stories that you can tell you're going to have some heroes and you're going to have some villains and the story is going to be about the heroes overcoming the villains and when you look at it like that it really means that your bad guy is your plot so going back to the idea of the big bad wolf if you decide that you want to base it on this character, so you say, okay, I'm going to make the big bad wolf this evil lord, then the first thing I'm going to start asking about the evil lord is, why is he evil? You know, what sort of things have happened in his past, or what sort of pressure does he have on him that's making him do these things? Maybe the evil lord is actually not so evil, but say a dragon came and stole his, uh, came and stole his daughter away, or his wife away, and in order to keep them safe, then maybe the dragons required that the evil lord go around and destroy these villagers who are, you know, encroaching on the dragon's land or, you know, shooting at him when he tries to steal the sheep or or something like that. 
Okay, so what you're saying to be to make a good GM like have a backstory for everything, like a backstory for why the the main villain's evil, and like backstory for all that stuff to make like a good game environment. I think that having a backstory is important for creating a deep game environment for sure. Having things have motivations is always is always good. One of the standard types of games that I played when I was younger was a dungeon crawl, which is you get the players together and they gather up their gear and they walk down into a set of caves under the ground and they go through killing the creatures, taking their treasure, getting the experience points and then they go back to town and they cash in their gold or whatever it is that they might happen to do and they get slightly better. But there's no, there's never any kind of idea of why these creatures are in this cave underground. I mean, how do these things eat underground? You know, what do they spend their day doing? Right? So, in that respect, if you want to play that type of game, and there are lots of people that do, then it's more a, it's almost to being a board game. Because there's not really any motivation, they're just obstacles to overcome. Yeah. Whereas, if, for example, these this cave, this series of caves is actually a group of monsters that have been gathered together by some bad guy, whether it be like an evil magician or an evil cleric or something like that. They've gathered up all these creatures for the specific purpose of commanding them to go and attack local villages like, and getting them coordinated so that they're able to be more successful. My feeling is always that if you look into the motivations of the bad guys, it's going to make for a deeper story. Like a good example of that use of that in, in television is that X, the X-Files. I mentioned it before, but, but it, it has um, what's going on in the individual episode, but there's always this storyline in the background of what's, you know, what's motivating everything else that's going on, and it creates, at least as far as I'm concerned, it creates a more immersive experience because nothing is happening just because. Right, there's... The the example in television would be the sitcom where, you know, this half hour happens and then next time it's like it never happened at all. There's no carry-on from one to the next. And I think that if you create deep backstory for your adversaries, then it's going to create a more satisfying role-playing experience. So, yes, a piece of advice, one, for a GM would be when you choose your bad guy, put a lot, lot of time into his backstory because from his backstory or her backstory, or its backstory. A whole lot of other stories are going to be suggested. And another thing that I say with about really good villains is give them something that's slightly good about them. You know, something that you, so that you can empathize with your bad guy. Because the best bad guys in films, like, I mean, Hannibal Lecter is the prime example. There are some bad guys that are really evil and really nasty, but you always find yourself rooting for them. And the reason why people root for the bad guy is almost always because you get a look at their motivations, you get a look at look at look at their deep character. And by looking at their deep character you find things in it that you can identify with. So for example, Hannibal Lecter has you know, like he's in the mental institution because he's clearly mad and he's clearly brutal and all that sort of thing. But he kills Migs, you know, multiple Migs when he throws the semen at Jody at um, uh, Clary Starling, right, Jodie Foster's character, right, and and he finds that to be you know repellent behaviour and very rude. So you know automatically you think you know I don't know if I necessarily would kill him, but you can empathise with Hannibal Lecter killing Migs, right, and so by having 
things about your villain that people can identify with and like, it makes the experience, well, at least I think, makes the experience richer, and that's always the thing about good villains. So choose your villain, flesh them out, look at their backstory, see what other stories are suggested, see how it affects other things in your story. Pick something about them that the characters are going to find likable. And then it makes them more it makes them less one dimensional. Yeah, that would be the two things I would say about the about the villain. Aside from that, one of the things that can sort of break the immersion of your players in the game is make sure that you've got a little like a list of or a, a couple little sketches of uh, what are called non-player characters. Those are the people that the, that the players bump into because it'll help the story to keep going. And and I said in the book, and uh, and Chris also last week was saying, you know, just choose people from your past. Choose people that are not mutual friends of both of them. Change their names a little bit, but you know their character and personality already. So, again, that adds another layer of truth to your story by using people that are real, that you actually know, basing your characters on them. It makes them believable when you're representing them. So those would be the three things I would say. Choose a nice, simple story. Spend plenty of time fleshing out your bad guy or girl or bad thing. And then thirdly is don't ignore the small details. Spend time on getting a group of uh, NPCs, you know, your, your bit players if it was a movie, you know, your, your walk-on parts. Make sure you prepare a few of those in advance so that when the players go in a slightly different direction than you've perhaps prepared for, you can then go and break those guys out and you can make them believable because they're based upon people that you know. Okay, I'll, I'll reading through the book earlier, I, I, I read about character backstory, like, and how important it is. So what what's a good way to start a good character backstory that would help your character to progress through the game? Uh, that's a, yeah, I think that to get the most out of it as a player, I would say a similar thing when it comes to, the, to your bad guy girl thing, is that having a good backstory is a really is a good way to inform the decisions that you make when you're playing that character. So I would say again, when it comes to a player, choose some event from their past that has affected them. And if I'm going to go back again to uh, Clarice Starling um, from The Science of the Lambs, you know the the, the heroine and that Jodie Foster's character, is that you know, she picks on this the science, the, the, the crying of the lambs and stuff, and the fact that she was, you know, an orphan and so on and so forth. So that, at least in my opinion, and people may interpret the film differently, but that whole experience and the fact that she was so powerless then meant that she spent the rest of her life going through trying to make herself, you know, as, as self-possessed as possible. And I think that that slight vulnerability with that strength of character is what appealed to the character of, of Hannibal Lecter. So having those sort of seminal events in the character's past helps you to get a feeling for their moral compass. And if you're playing a character that is not a lot like yourself, think about a character that you like from fiction and then tweak it slightly. Just like if you're a GM, you take a story from fiction. If you're playing a character, take a character that you like from fiction and tweak it a little bit. And so by being familiar with that character, then it helps you to inform the decisions that you might make in the game. And if you really want to get the most out of actual role-playing, R-O-L-E playing, rather than, say, for example, killing the creatures and getting the treasure, then basing, well, at least when you start out, basing your character on 
another character whose personality you're somewhat familiar with can help you to play slightly differently than you are. So, yeah, I would say for backstory, at least when you're starting out, choose a character from fiction, base your character on that, and then work towards it or diverge from it as time goes by. Maybe you'll get a better feeling for it, and then that will help you to decide what the character would do in certain situations. Um, Another good example would be, say, Mel Gibson's character in Lethal Weapon. In that he's uh, got nothing left to lose. So that makes him impetuous. It makes him not worry about his own safety. And if you're a, a fairly careful, cautious person in general, and you want to play something that's totally different to yourself, then maybe basing your character on the character of Riggs might help you to make decisions and situations that are not what you would do, but are what this character would do. I'm also seeing here, too, that it says when you're making a backstory to try to tie in, like, some of your skills or your, like, like you said, what your, um, your personal skill, like, try to tie that into your background, too, and helps with the game. Oh, sure. If I was using... Jodie Foster's character from um, The Science of the Lambs as a template for making my own character, then I would imagine that she came from a probably a working-class background or maybe a middle-class background. It certainly wasn't a rich, wealthy background, so I might choose middle-class or working-class. Um, she works for the FBI, so I would maybe I'd choose middle-class as, um, as my primary set of skills. So I'd flesh out her lore, put some extra stuff on lore and investigation. I don't imagine she'd have much in the way of adventure. Um, She might have a couple of extra skills in martial, tactics and organization. Maybe not so much because she she seems to me to have been a little bit of a loner. Um, Linguistics, maybe not. Maybe research. Like if I was talking about upper class skills, I might choose maybe upper class as my last. I would put some some stealth in there maybe, some street. Uh, And then... You know, whatever else after that. But you can, like, I just focused a lot on law and investigation because that's the type of character that she is. But that's often, if you're going to base it on somebody from a film or something that you've seen, then oftentimes, because the film has a couple of hours to help you get a grip on what's going on in the story, they don't have a lot of room for character development. So it's unlikely that any character that you base your, um, your own character on that they're going to have all of those areas fleshed out in the film. Now, if you choose a, a character from a novel, so, for example, an example I've used before is John Rebus, who is a detective um, working in Edinburgh, and there are 13 books based on him. If you were really familiar with it, you might be able to fill all of those in based upon the background shared in the book. But overall, Jodie Foster seems to keep to herself mostly, um, and she knows a lot about the law, so that would help with that. Another thing to keep in mind though, is that if you're going to base a character on somebody from fiction, is to, or even from history, is to keep in mind that that character that you see in the film or oftentimes in history is a character that's fully formed. For example, um, Jodie Foster has already got all of her skills. In some films, you can see the characters developing and picking up things along the way, like uh, I'm not sure if you watch Sons of Anarchy, but for anybody that that does, you'll know what I'm talking about. But Jax's girlfriend, whose name completely escapes me right now, uh, she 
starts the series coming back uh, to a small town where there's this motorcycle gang, and the vice president of the motorcycle gang is played by um, Charlie Hunnam, who is you might some of you might also know from the the, the uh, TV show Undeclared. Anyway, he's a vice president in a gang, and she's uh, trained to be a doctor. And then as the series goes by, she starts off being in a very straight-laced, very, or at least she seems very straight-laced, very studious. But then when it gets partway through the second series, she's been associated with this gang guy all this time. And in the second series, she beats up and threatens one of the, uh, threats sort of the supervisor that lives, that, that works in the hospital. So if you've got a television series or something like that, you can actually see the characters developing. So, um, and in films, oftentimes they're fully formed. But I guess the point that I'm making is, if you base it on something from fiction or even from history, chances are that character is fully formed already, whereas the character that you're creating is actually embryonic to a certain extent because you've only got a certain number of points and it's unlikely you're going to be able to accurately represent this fictional character that you've selected. But you can keep that fictional character in mind as perhaps a goal, somewhere you're going to. But what's equally likely to happen is as you become more and more familiar with the character, you'll find that the choices you make may take you another direction altogether. So you start off with this idea of making Batman, or at least Bruce Wayne, and you end up with something completely different. But having that to start with is often a good, a good place, a good thing to start with. All right, going back to skills, how does uh, reverse skill use work? Like, is it is it good to have, like, and... And what skills would it more likely apply to that would be more efficient than others? Well, that's that's one of the... I mean, the, you say efficient there, and, and I don't know if this is necessarily what you meant, but one of the things about MMOs is that there's often... You need to spend time maximizing your skills, right? Taking what, what few skills you've got and making the very best character that you can. And in episode four, uh, Sean Nittner, one of my guests... Um, was saying about the 3.5 version of Dungeons and Dragons that people spend a lot of time trying to really max out their character, like picking certain areas to make them awesome in and then pushing their character in that direction. And that really comes down to the divide, I guess, between the type of game and the type of game that people want to play. If you want to play a game that's very goal-oriented for your character, you want to kill the baddies, get their gold, and get better, then you're going to select skills that will help you to do that. But if your goal is to pick a role and try and inhabit that character, do this stuff as you go along, then there's really no... Then really I would say that it's not... There is no right set of skills to use. A really good game master will take a look at the skills that the characters have chosen and weave the story in that direction. Like in the game master section, I say, you know, as a GM, one of your responsibilities is to make sure that everybody has a good time. And to make sure everybody has a good time, you really need to take a look at the characters that they've created and make sure that at least one scene per session is tailored specifically to the skills that your characters have selected. So, for example, if you find a, somebody who has spent a lot of, put a lot of their effort into creating a character with lots and lots of linguistic skills and they've put extra skills into chameleon and they've said that they're an actor then you really need to say, okay, well, this person wants to play the role of a of an actor, so I need to make sure that I put situations in the game where they're going to get to use those acting skills. Whereas in games like, say, World of Warcraft or Skyrim or you know, Oblivion, 
you really can only do two things in the game. You can go through the sets of words that you're given to choose with somebody, or you can fight them. So the only skills that you need to concern yourself with are fighting skills, because everything else is just a matter of selecting the right thing, right? Like you know, uh, like thieving skills and so forth. But um, really, by choosing those skills, you're dictating the way that you're going to play the game. And if you want to be successful, those skills that you choose are going to then inform the way that you play the game so that you can be successful. But in a, a role-playing game like Victoria, if, the emphasis, if you want to place the emphasis on inhabiting the role, there are no right skills to use. There is no best set of skills to choose. Because with a good GM, no matter what you choose, they're all going to be good skills. And you can play out whatever it is that you want. So I'm not sure if that really answers your uh, really answers your question, or at least the first part of your question. The second part was using reverse skills, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, the the thing about um, like I say, the thing about the set of skills we've got that there are in Victoria is that uh, there aren't a lot of them. But my philosophy when I wrote them is that I wrote them in such a way that you could use some of the skills in reverse. There's no extra cost to using the skills in reverse, but like a skill like say for example chameleon. One of the things you can do with Chameleon is, and the, the scene that I used as a, as a, when I was thinking about writing this was in, in Sherlock Holmes. Uh, you recall the scene where you know, Watson's coming up the stairs and Sherlock Holmes jumps out of the window and falls down into this coal cellar and he's, he's, he's walking along, he's grabbing this hat and he grabs this nose and he puts a scarf on, all that sort of thing, all with the express purpose of keeping up with Irene Adler and then getting a look at who's in the, in the carriage with her. You remember that? Yes, I do. When he disguised himself as a homeless man. That's right. Yeah. So, like he, so Sherlock Holmes might be a really good person to base your character on, but Sherlock Holmes is fully formed. He doesn't increase in his skills as the game goes through. But Sherlock Holmes, there's no way that you could make a character that was Sherlock Holmes. You can make a character that's a young Sherlock Holmes, and then they develop their skills as they go along. But going back to using skills in reverse, Sherlock Holmes one of his um, things is he would have a really high chameleon skill. He's very capable of uh, you know, changing his appearance. And like his specialty, although probably if I were making him as a character, he'd probably have several specialties, one of his specialties would be disguise. So as he's walking along, he's put, he puts this awesome disguise together because he's got a specialty in, in uh, disguise. So, but if I wanted to use it in reverse, somebody who was good at disguising themselves would know the sort of things that people pay the most attention to. People pay a lot of attention to people's hair, for example, like beard or moustache or whatever it might happen to be. Um, And so if you had chameleon skill and you wanted to use it in reverse, you could use that to spot somebody trying to disguise themselves. That's uh, like Sherlock Holmes, too. I I noticed at the end of the movie that they were trying to find a guy who had changed his his face a little bit because he was going to be an assassin, and they were looking for something completely different. Sherlock Holmes used his abilities to detect what you'd be looking for in someone else if they changed their, their look, and that's how he found the guy. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly the, the idea that I had when it came to, to using skills in reverse, is that not only can you hide yourself, but you can spot somebody else who's trying to disguise. Okay, so I'm, I was looking through your book, and here in Chapter 10 that's really caught my interest was the, the supernatural, and I was looking through it a bit, and there's stuff here about vampires and werewolves. So in your game, can you actually, like, if a character wanted to, could they weave kind of a story in that, like, say their family history has a curse of, of vampirism or werewolf? Could they, could they weave that into the game and actually have that 
be a part of their character. Yep, for sure. Absolutely. And that's and again, that comes back to what I was saying earlier on. If you want to have that as part of your backstory, then there's no question that having that in there, um, that, the, that the GM would take that and run with it. The more, imp- the more effort that you put into developing a character um, and the more effort you put into their backstory... The more, to a degree, the more of the work you're actually doing for the game master. If you put some really awesome hooks into creating your character, like they've got werewolf, uh, like lycanthropy or vampirism in their family history, then the GM's probably going to pick up on that and bring that into the story. So you can put, whenever you, when you create a character, you can put whatever you want into the backstory, and um, the GM will pick up on that. And if they're good, you know, they'll weave that they'll weave that into the story too. So by creating a really good backstory, you're going to create a better role-playing experience for yourself. So what would be an example of how the Game Master would bring in, like, vampirism or were- werewolf or hypocrisy, like you said, into, like, say, I made it as my backstory? How would he bring that into the game so that's actually a part of it? Okay, well, one of the things about Victoria is that, that there's the, the, the supernatural section is, uh, is completely optional. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it couldn't it couldn't be in there um, in some in some point. So I gave three examples of the way that the supernatural could be incorporated. The first one is the Sherlock Holmes version of the supernatural. So if you're familiar at all with the Hound of the Baskervilles as a story, um, then the Hound of the Baskervilles um, is actually just a dog, right? But to all, for all intents and purposes, all the stuff going on appears to be supernatural. Likewise, in the film, the first Sherlock Holmes film when Lord Blackwood theoretically comes back from the dead. Yeah. Right, and all that stuff going on. Sherlock Holmes, in the end, like, deduces everything that's going on and is able to show that there's actually no supernatural at all. Right? So that's one way that your story could go. Another way could be extended reality. So some of the things that occur in the story are actually explainable by science. So, for example, lycanthropy could actually be caused by a virus transmitted by dogs. When people lose a lot of weight, they often grow hair on their body. Now, what the explanation for that could be is that you know somebody who gets bitten with this virus is actually able to produce hair very, very quickly. So when certain... Um, when the moon is full, let's just say, for example, um, they're gathering or their vitamin D or some vitamin or other is being converted by the sun all day long and then because there's this reflected sunlight coming from the moon when it's full all this extra sunshine that they're getting in the day actually causes some type of enzyme or other to go into overdrive and that makes them grow hair very 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 quickly and it also causes certain hormones to to start being produced rapidly as well like say for instance testosterone and adrenaline and all those sorts of things so the person isn't really a werewolf per se but has all of the classical characteristics of a werewolf like they're extra strong, they're extra hairy they're extra fast, they're animalistic the reason that they're going around killing things and eating them is because this whole process of changing actually requires a lot of energy so that's an example of where the thing is a werewolf but is based at least somewhat on fact and then the third choice that you have as a game master is to decide whether such a thing as magic actually exists. And if such a thing as magic actually exists, then it means that none of the known laws are immutable. That is, anything can be changed. And if you're going to go with that, then you have to be really careful 
with what it is that you do because in the book I give the example if you make a vampire that's super super strong don't set the characters up to fight them because if you're going to make the character the vampire super super strong then the characters are going to get killed when they fight them so instead of it becoming an adversary in terms of you know somebody that they're actually going to have to go toe to toe with then they become a puzzle that is there's no chance that they're going to defeat them one to one but maybe they can take the time to investigate where their lair is and then maybe they can bribe the butler and so on and so forth to the point where they can kill the vampire without having to face them toe to toe so really when it comes down to it none of them is any more or less enjoyable than any of the others but as a GM you would have to decide what you're most comfortable with maybe you love high magic I know that well, last week's guest, Chris, really likes magical stuff, right? Really likes high fantasy. And so that would be the way he would choose to go. Myself, I enjoy um, I enjoy the characters to really have to struggle. So I might choose one of the first two, like, for example, where the Sherlock Holmes version, where everything is explainable through science, or the extended reality version, where things that are real are sort of tweaked a little bit and just taken a little bit further. But there's, no, there's not really any um, right way to go. But to answer your question specifically, how could the, the game master bring that in? Well, if they decided they wanted to go the Sherlock Holmes route, then they would probably describe it as being somebody... There's people in your your past that have that you know you know there is that actually that disease where people grow lots and lots and lots of extra hair right yeah and then if that was to be that particular um genetic anomaly was to then be mixed with a family history of madness then it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to imagine somebody who was mad and was also afflicted by that hair growing disease to actually combi- like to combine the two and be viewed as if they were a werewolf. All right, so can can your character in the game, when you make them, can they actually, like, say, become a werewolf or be a vampire in the game? Or Oh, for sure, and that's one of the... I haven't actually written that part yet, but if there's enough interest, I'll certainly be writing a supplement where people can actually play these supernatural, these supernatural creatures. But um, And I give a few hints about ways you might want to go about doing that, but if you wanted your your character to become... A vampire or, or a werewolf at some stage during the game, then that would be something you'd have to negotiate with your, your game master, what effect that might actually take. Being a vampire would be more difficult, depending on how you want to play that vampire out. But being a werewolf, I would imagine, is, is something that, uh, that could be relatively easily incorporated. The problem that you run into there is that both of them are pretty, are both are pretty solitary beasts. And so if you've got a game group of, say, four people and only one of them is getting to be a vampire and, and the session's all about the vampire going around in the night killing people and biting them, it's not going to be much fun for anybody else. But, yeah, as I say, that's something that you would want to incorporate in the backstory of your... Um, that was something that you could incorporate in the backstory of your character, but you probably would have wanted to discuss that with your, uh, with your GM first, the type of story that they were going to tell. All right. So um, what kind of... What kind of skills or what kind of uh, help would you gain, say, if you were a werewolf in the game? Would you, like, get extra skills, like extra strength that's for a certain point, amount of time in the game? Or would it just would it be drawbacks of being a werewolf? And... It swings and roundabouts to a degree. A werewolf is a much more physical but much less personal version of ourselves. So you would probably gain some extra athletics-type skills. You would, but you would lose people skills and a number of other ones. So, I mean, the game master could certainly balance it all out. Um, if you were going to play a, a character that once every year or once every month you know, became became a werewolf, that would be much more manageable than, say, for example, a character that was a vampire. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
but there would be no it would be as a game master I would I would suggest against allowing a uh, a player to create a character that was much much more powerful than all of the other characters I would say that any one spot that you gained in say for example athletics uh, would be a spot that you would lose um, uh, your two spots maybe even that you'd lose elsewhere on your character sheet depending on on how it was that you wanted to take what direction you wanted to take that werewolf in yeah to equal it all out so that you're not too overpowerful make, that wouldn't make the game fun because then you'd be able to to do everything with no problem at all that's right yeah well, that's the thing is that at least in my opinion, it's always the, the fun is always the struggle, right? And, and in some respects, you know, the journey is the is the best part. So your journey from being, you know, Bruce Wayne, for example, to being Batman, um, like getting your character to the point where they are actually as much like Batman as as you imagine Batman is, you know, that that's that's part of the fun. So I, I read in the section here too about depending on what class you choose, it all that all plays into how much money you start out with like how much of a role does money really play in in this kind of game well that's that's the thing is it depends from from game to game if you have a um like for the most part there's not much fun to be gained from um from role playing with money because none of the things you actually buy are real so in almost all of the games that i've played the money is only ever important right at the very start i put the money in the game to give you some feeling for the sort of money that you might have rattling around in your pocket the real effect of having money is this um is the way you're going to be able to interact with other people and although the general perception is that somebody who is upper class is going to be wealthy. That's not always the case. Upper class really means that somebody is um, is of aristocratic birth. It's like good birth. So although you may not necessarily be very rich, you've got lots of good connections, and that's really what being upper class is all about. So money doesn't have much of an effect in the game um, unless you're trying to buy something very, very expensive. Okay, uh, too, I'm looking at those gentlemen's clubs, too, and I, I read somewhere that you can create your own your own club. So if I... I was to create a club, like, say, for werewolves again, like, a, a kind of club that they're based on hunting, like, vampires and werewolves. The, the Game Master would incorporate that into the game where you'd actually have a situation or two where you'd have to fight one. and Or sure. even if, if you wanted, like, you set it up, you made that, that group, and you wanted to, like, say one of the requirements to join was to kill a vampire or werewolf, and you set it up that that club's there, but you're not in it, but you want to join it or progress to the right. game to join it. So he would set it up in a situation where you would achieve your goal to joining the club. Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, that's a great idea, Ethan. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I was going to say, so if I were the GM and, and somebody was to come to me with that, I'd say absolutely. I would say that the character probably wouldn't be a vampire or, or a werewolf, but to actually have to kill a vampire or a werewolf to join the club, that'd be great. And, and, and if the player was going to go to the trouble of creating the name of the club, um, that this was... That this was part of, then that'd be then awesome. More power to them, and that kind of brings me on a little bit to this idea of plot points. Um, one of the things about uh, the game is these plot points, and plot points are a way for the player to sort of gain a little bit of control of the story. So, like I said to you before, you know, you can if you roll and things don't go your way, you can spend the plot points on improving your rolls and and thereby affecting the way that the story is going to go. But uh, and one of the ways you can get plot points is by you know making suggestions just like that. So if somebody came to me with that all written out, I'd be like, here, have a couple of plot points, maybe even have a couple of experience points or put an extra spot here. So absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely encouraged. The more that a player wants to put into the character background, the more they want to bring to the story, then I'm definitely going to reward them for sure. That sounds great. Yeah, 
Oh, uh, that that really piqued my interest. Looking at how there's there's different clubs you can join, but I, I think it'd be more fun to even if like even looking at the groups that are already made. Like instead of putting in your backstory that you've already accomplished the thing to join, but actually have like a spot in the story where you have an opportunity to yeah. join, like oh, the stag yeah. club. Yeah, an opportunity arises where you can kill a deer and become a part of that club that you're seeking to join or right. whatnot. Like, that really sounds awesome. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that uh, I don't know if killing a stag would be would be all that much uh, interest. Uh, there wouldn't be all that much interest in killing a stag in the story. But that one with killing the vampire and the werewolf that would definitely be something you could base a story on. And a number of those clubs as well. You know, you can like incorporating those into the uh, like achieving a goal of getting into one of those clubs. Then for sure, absolutely. And that's really what role playing is all about: is setting up your character, giving them goals as well and then achieving those in conjunction with the sort of goals that throw them that sort of that are suggested by the story that's being told by the storyteller that's really what makes role playing the most fun well i think i've i've got a pretty good understanding of it i don't have any real any more questions now though okay so i guess the next thing is we'll run up a character and then we'll uh play a game and get your your impressions afterward looking forward to it that's it for episode 6 of Penny Red. For those interested in a recording of Ethan's character generation, go to pennyredpodcast.com and download or play episode 6B. On next week's show, I catch up with Ethan after his first game. We discuss his impressions and discuss whether there's role-playing in his future. Until then, keep talking the walk. Mm-hmm.